These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So, Toby. Yes, Greg. After the experience of finally getting to talk about the re-entry of Rebecca Wolverton into the story of New Century, it almost feels like I'm coming off of an emotional high. Nothing can be better than finally being able to talk about something I've been waiting years to talk about. In comparison to that one moment, it almost feels like there's nothing left to talk about. Excuse me. There's nothing left of relevance in Steam Art to cover. Who are all these people over here? What's all this with the face mask? No, we don't want any of your Ibex, thank you very much. Meanwhile, a young Mexican boy pulls up his mongoose mask and says, My name is Miguel Alejandro Delgado. You've dishonored my mother. Prepare to die. Holy shit, the purple tiger went tiger on me. Quick, get me a brick and a handbag. Oh, wait, I'm dead. Well, I guess it's up to me to do the rest of the podcast. Uh, Hey, kid, you want to co-host with me on this one? (laughs) All right. I think he's signing with his uh, agent, I believe. Yes, I will get you full custody of it because it seems as if I'm not in a position to negotiate. So absolutely. I, for one, welcome my new Purple Tiger overlord. I'd love to continue the joke. Unfortunately, that's all I've had prepared. And (laughs) even though I could potentially do a Mexican accent, I don't think it would be a little ridiculous of me to start pretending to be Miguel for the rest of the podcast. So, (laughs) All right. Welcome back. We are here (laughs) in Steamheart. Greg is dead. Uh, It's a sad time, (laughs) but life goes on. We find a way. We're going to be talking about chapters 24 through 26. Oh my god, Greg, you're alive! (laughs) I think the conceit is is, is over, Toby. (laughs) This is only the beginning of what's going to end up being our favorite part of the story, I think. Because as much as we have enjoyed everything that has happened up till this point, there's some unique character moments and conversations that get to happen once Prow and Miguel are introduced to the rest of Team Steam. I hadn't actually re-listened to the entirety of Steamheart since I first went through the whole thing back in 2019. But two of the chapters coming up are just ones that I would just listen to in the car as I was traveling because I enjoyed those moments so very much. This is the introduction to bringing our Tiger's Eye heroes into the fold. And yet, before we can even get there, because the chapter where they're actually brought in is at the tail end, (laughs) tail end, of everything that we're going to be talking about, it's very important in the meantime that we get to give some more talking time to members of Team Steam that haven't gotten nearly as much love, either 
during our show or in the text itself. What that means is we're starting our conversation out of order again, and we're going to focus on Jeremy. Yes, it is always time for our Pancake Paranormal Perusa. <laughs> oh, yes, I love a good alliteration. Absolutely. Part of the reason why I want to start with him is that when Toby and I last talked about him, it was specifically, again, thinking forward to this scene in mind, him making Madeleines for the crew. It would be easy to suggest that having Jeremy narrating this moment is just a way to continue to keep us out of the minds that make us most curious, but there are small details that cannot help but reveal more of Jeremy's character in this simple domestic moment. Already well aware of how much Jeremy misses Donald from that conversation with Frank, we can see making these Madelines as a way of being close to him again, what Maureen would refer to me as a love language. It's just being spoken to someone that isn't there, or alternately, mm. it's a way of, as I said a moment ago, making these Madelines is something he associates doing with Donald. And so therefore, even if Donald isn't there, by partaking in the ritual, it's a way to feel like he's there. It brings him into the conversation, even if he's only holding that conversation with himself. Mm -hmm. mm. Given how much coupling is going on around him, from Annie and Butler's long pre-established relationship to the hooking up between James and Rebecca, Harry and Abigail, heck, even Raven spent some time with someone from the Diamond Bell, though we will see that that did quite the opposite in making him feel less isolated and distant from the subject of his love. But focusing on Jeremy, all of that could serve to make Jeremy feel unjustly left hung out to dry. With the exception of Abigail and Harry, a lot of the heteronormative couples get to have some sort of relief, whereas our gay man on the team is just kind of left by himself, which mm. is kind of a unfortunate place for him to be in and for us who like him to see him be there. Frank identifies this already, so it's nice that he makes time for Jeremy, making him feel rested and appreciated not just for his abilities, but for his company. This, what we see here with the Madelines, is the other side of that. We get to see what Jeremy does from within to keep himself afloat, and we see that he does so with affirming success. He makes and celebrates food, particularly rare food, that directly connects with Donald, bridging the gap between them and reminding himself of all that he carries with him of the man he loves, including the much-valued knowledge-slash-culinary skill. And that's the thing about cooking. It can simultaneously be good for the soul to make and create a fine meal, as well as raise the spirits of those around you. Jeremy just continues to be best boy. There's something that I didn't necessarily appreciate when I was younger, and that can be the importance of doing mundane things in order to restore order to your life when you feel things are too chaotic and you have a hard time taking care of the things that you need to. And that something as simple as making yourself a good breakfast or cleaning your room or doing your laundry, these are all things that generally should be done in order to make things easier for you in other ways. 
and yet there is an agency associated with all of this that should not be discounted. Sometimes doing the easy thing, like not having to focus on cleaning your room right now or whatever, or going out and having somebody else you know, just get something from Dunkin' Donuts or something like that in order to feed yourself. It's quick. It's easy. It allows you to focus on other things. But it doesn't quite have the same feel to it as showing that you can take care of these things and that you might feel better about yourself afterwards. That's a little bit like what this moment might feel like for Jeremy, also kind of in the same way of what he was doing for Harry in terms of being a help to her. But this is something entirely within himself. I mean, he is technically doing it for everybody in that he is providing a delicious meal, but there's almost an unusual selfish aspect to it in what this cooking ritual means to him. It's something he does without having to consult with anyone it's just Mm. like this is something i'm going to do i think for him he sees this rare fruit and he knows exactly what the best use for them is Mm. i think that's just a lovely assurance in the act of him just being like yep we're doing these we're making madelines yeah exactly the rare fruit is actually something that i wanted to point out even though the idea isn't deluded to in his brain. I wonder if him making the Madelines includes a sort of subconscious motive. We mm. know that he gives an ulterior motive to Annie, basically, quote-unquote, bribing her in order to get closer to the window at the Natchez. But just as Harry has been shown to be insightful as to what is going on in the heads of those around her, I suspect that Jeremy is potentially also aware of the tension brewing. Even if he was not privy to every individual altercation that the story audience is, we do know that he was present for enough of the surrounding circumstances to be able to pick up on things. Not to mention that we know that Annie heard the unbridled enthusiasm of our two pairings. He possibly also likely heard it. What happens this morning is not guaranteed to go south. Like many social moments, it depends on all the individual ingredients. In this way, I assert that Jeremy is the ripe waxed lemon to this breakfast, the one key ingredient that could make the difference into keeping people on an even keel. How can you be mad in Jeremy's sunny presence, especially when he went out of his way to provide such a splendid repast? Oh, yeah, I absolutely support your supposition that Jeremy is doing this not just because he sees rare ingredients in front of him and he's seizing the chance to make the best goddamn pancakes you ever did taste, but also because he sees the other ingredients, as you articulate, that are around him as well, namely in the recent developments that could create disastrous social fallout among the team. All of this supports our previous conclusions in our past conversations about Jeremy. He is determined to get as close a look at that rainbow as he can manage, even deviously weaponizing pancakes to literally sweet-talk the captain. And sidebar, that trick totally works. If you ever need to convince me of anything, just wave a plate of pancakes in my face first thing in the morning (laughs) and I'll agree to give you my kidney. 
But while it can take him a while to get there sometimes, he does, without fail, notice when people around him are being pushed to their breaking point, and he acts accordingly to help make sure that that point never comes, that mm. they steer away from it before they get there. Jeremy is invested in this group, not only because its continual functioning among its members is essential for him to get to see what he wants to witness, thereby the practical, like, mm -hmm. personal reason, but also because he's responsible like that. He likes to help where and how he can, and as we saw with his interaction with Harry, one of his go-to strategies for ensuring that people are taken care of is to get them good food. I'm suddenly recalling that one moment in Arlington where Jeremy is writing out what his experiences were in the evening, I think, after the whole confrontation between Thomas and Seth. And part of the entire litany of what Jeremy goes over is not just the fact that he has a vigorous sexual encounter with Donald. That was one of the things that we pointed out because reconnecting intimately with your partner was a significant part of that particular chapter for everybody. But one of the elements that we did not touch on at the time is that after all of the discussion and the writing and the diagramming that they did, and after all of the vigorous sexing, Donald specifically made scotch pancakes for, uh, yeah. for Jeremy as an expression, again, of their relationship, of their love, of their intimacy. So that means that there's a nice sort of mirroring going on here. And, I, and when I say mirroring, I don't mean that everyone was having sex and therefore that made Jeremy want to make pancakes. <laughs> but I'm not not saying that either. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you you got to do it when things heat up. That's the only way you can get the oil good and hot. Honestly, I, I feel like I want to take a moment to quote the end of that particular encounter in Arlington, where Jeremy is saying, I reassured him that he is the home I will always want to come back to. And this is him creating that home where he is, mm -hmm. that even as he is seeing that next horizon as we see in that chapter he's making plans with annie for mm. how he will see into that other world he's recreating that home that he wants to come back to yeah that's actually a shockingly important aspect like this brings us back all the way to that first chapter the first chapter that introduced jeremy to be clear where they weren't able to get to the rainbow and they had to return home Mm. But it's an important to establish that just because Jeremy wants to experience another world, mm. he has every intention of coming back from it at the end. He isn't trying to escape to another world. He mm. wants to be able to experience something new and come back to Donald and be able to tell him all about it. Right. It's not just the experiencing of something. It's mm. being able to share it with others. And that's what makes Jeremy compelling, mm. is that there is a tension there. That is the inner tension between two things that he wants that are not necessarily incompatible, but it shows that he is not a character that is motivated by some very set, concrete 
if I get this, then I've accomplished what I want as a character and as an individual. You see that a lot in all the various members of Team Steam and just the characterization of protagonists in New Century as a whole. You have Raven being driven to be a journalist even as he is seeing this society that he has integrated himself into to some extent continuously let him and his people down and take something really important away from him so you have that tension you have abigail wanting to push at the limitations around her but still being just really kind of connected with that so all of these characters have some tension between the thing they want and something that keeps them grounded it was at this point during our original conversation that Toby had to pause to talk to his wife, Sarah, who was away on a trip. And I don't usually point out moments of disconnect in our Skype sessions, instead choosing to edit around them. I point this out because as I waited for Toby to return, I reflected on the importance of rituals when people are apart from each other going on a long, rambling commentary on what it might be like for Toby to be apart from Sarah, and from there, continuing on to talk about my experience with Maureen. That original recording, I decided to excise, because parts of it were a little too personal, and because I knew I could write something more concise and poetic, as I often do when refining our podcast. So here it is. A big part of the experience of me and Maureen getting closer has been realizing the significance of being absent from someone that makes a difference in your day-to-day -day existence. As someone that has tried very hard to be self-sufficient, this was a new experience for me. It isn't just about keeping up regular contact. It's about those little rituals that are not unlike Jeremy and Donald making food together. And when we came to the conclusion that we needed to take the next step and build a life together, those rituals became all the more important. Because it hasn't been easy trying to figure out her move out here. Apart from all the logistics of it, there's a growing tension in the waiting as we try to get all of our ducks in a row. As Billy Crystal might say, when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. On top of that, it's easier to give support and show love when you are physically present with each other. And as alluded to above, not being able to be with each other yet has made it more difficult to deal with our day-to-day -day stresses. My point in bringing this up is that Maureen and I at least have the benefit of modern technology to remain in contact. Jeremy and Donald don't have that. Even if they use the military telegram to keep in touch, we are never told. Their relationship is their own, of course, and maybe they are confident enough in it that the absence is not a pressing concern for either of them. Donald has his work, and Jeremy has his adventure. But just like we discussed that Frank engaged Jeremy in the bath to help him decompress, I can imagine an unspoken part of Jeremy that needed to make those Madelines just to help keep him on an even keel. Maybe at some point, we'll get to discuss Jeremy's relationship with Donald further. 
if he makes it through this journey. I just want to add mm-hmm. that I'm kind of very happy that we've been talking about Jeremy as much as we have, mm-hmm. and that we've been able to mine some fairly positive context mm-hmm. out of his presence in this book, because I don't know if you remember way back when we initially interviewed Matt about uh-huh. all the characters that he played. As I recall, I specifically took a piece of that interview and spliced it into one of our early conversations about Jeremy's interactions at mm-hmm. the beginning of Steamheart. It sort of felt a little bit like Matt was being very critical of Jeremy's personality and the way that he was in the book. And to a certain extent, I sort of understood why he might feel the way he felt, but it also felt like it was an expression of him being critical with himself to Mm. a certain degree. Mm. And so therefore, the fact that we've been able to go on to say all these nice things about Jeremy, that he's not quite the way that Matt characterized him back during that interview, that he's more nuanced and more empathetic Mm. than it seemed like he was. Sure. I, I appreciate being able to put that into words to share mm. with everybody else. Yeah, I would have to re-listen to what he said exactly to engage with the specifics, but I can absolutely say that we are not putting blinders on to anything that are maybe some weaker areas of Jeremy that he sort of sometimes needs a little help with or stuff like that. We are able to see all of that, but I think we don't say that Jeremy is a compromised individual because Mm -hmm. of it. We're able to say, yes, Jeremy has all of this going for him, and he's able to reconcile some of this stuff in a way that's really healthy. And even if sometimes that tug of the things that motivate him sometimes mean that he puts a bit more emphasis on that but put it this way there are other characters within these books who have something that they are fixated on and they have some fatal flaw that is paired with that and i definitely don't think that jeremy is as far on the sliding scale as say thomas with his particular Mm -hmm. fixation or as we see Frau can Mm -hmm. be with hers when she is just kind of putting everything into i provide meat you sure you don't want to sit down nope more meat you need more meat this is what i can do do you want to talk about something nope we're not talking do you want to sleep and sleep is the enemy like, <laughs> literally the enemy it, as we it is about. so yeah i this is why i like jeremy so much because while there's a lot of characters in this who are dealing with some real trauma or just internal conflict Everyone involved in this journey is going on their own arc. He will be changed if he hasn't been already, but of everyone there, he kind of is the most okay Mm. at the moment. At the moment. Yes. It's just... (laughs) I feel like the need to recall back to Annie's opening words back at the beginning of Steamheart. Mm. This is not spoilers for anybody everyone would gain something everyone would lose something Mm. and not all of us would be coming back exactly 
So And that's all we'll say <laughs> so that we just do not I feel the snipers aiming at my position. It's all right, Alex, you can call them off. We're exercising restraint here. I mean, it's been a while since that book came out, but there's been so much that's happened since then. Mm-hmm. And it's nobody's fault the individual reader if they haven't necessarily taken advantage of the fact that there are some books that have not been put out into audio drama yet, but they can partake of them if they wish to. Alex goes out of his way to make it so very easy for anybody that wants to read more of his stuff or listen to more of his stuff to do so. But I would be lying if I wasn't sort of vibrating at the edge of my seat now that the Panther Soul audio drama is imminent and we're finally going to be able to hear the realization of something you and I have only read in text form for many months now. In point of fact, by the time of this episode's release, the first two chapters of the Panther Soul audio drama are already available to anyone on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed, with the third chapter mere days away. Toby and I love all of the stories we have read, but I would be doing a disservice if I did not highlight that Panther Soul is the one to beat in terms of its breadth, ambition, and story. And that's just speaking about the text. The added component of chosen music and the work of voice actors is already showing how added components work in concert to make an already strong narrative stand out. Uh, I'm going to be pouring myself a glass of wine and listening to my Panther boyfriend <laughs> for many hours. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the subject at hand, There's an intriguing juxtaposition for Jeremy's experiences in these chapters. At first, he is denied what he desires most. He Mm -hmm. gets to board the boat. He gets to write down as much stuff as he can, but he can't actually go through the wind door because it's just too dangerous on multiple levels. Not just because of the fact that, you know, they see that it leads out into a waterfall. But on Mm -hmm. top of that, his side of the wind door isn't really stable at all. There's an intriguing metaphor going on there. On the cusp of the rainbow, but unable to make the final step. Mm. And then, in the following chapter, Rao appears with Miguel, and suddenly everything is made better for him. He finally at least gets to talk with someone from another world. And we'll discuss more about what that experience ends up being like in our follow-up Skype conversation. But the crux is, is that he succeeded. Back in Chapter 3, he just wanted to talk with a leprechaun. And even though Miguel has to translate for Hrau, this experience that we're going to be talking about coming up is still a major part of what he's been waiting his whole life for. Oh my god, you are so right. That line about the leprechauns was entirely calling forward to this. And this is necessary, I think, to have Jeremy be denied a win of any kind, other than a fleeting glimpse into the other world that's necessarily cut short for the sake of safety, again, after he has had this brush against the periphery of everything he's sought his entire life once before, It would probably be too much for him to get nothing from that. Mm. 
we need a sign of forward momentum to him and by extension the rest of the group they're not just on window closing duty in perpetuity even though when they were told about this that's another reason you can add to the pile of why abigail was acting out when she got to memphis and saw the diamond bell because she is getting this thing of okay we got new orders we found out about this window we need to open this up and someone asks i forget if it's actually abigail herself like how long are we going to keep doing this and it's the answer is basically the only one that anyone can give which is for as long as there are windows that we need to close and it's Mm -hmm. just that can be quite a crushing thing to hear when it's like you have no guarantee whether what you're doing is just sort of taking a bucket to the lower levels of the Titanic. You know what? That's a perfect metaphor. You're taking a bucket to a sinking ship while Abigail goes to close a wind door on a sunken ship. <laughs> we need that sign of forward momentum because that's essential to the soul. And when Jeremy finally gets vindication of some form that he doesn't just get to look through the door he gets someone who's come through the door and it's like sup i'm a tiger and it's like okay expand (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to get too far off track but what you were saying a moment ago with abigail that's an ongoing part of her own internal frustration She was stuck at Weirwood for a good portion of her life, Mm -hmm. and she made the most of that experience and rose to the top of the pecking order in order to have the most freedom possible in that situation. Mm -hmm. And then she moved on to being a cartographer, which allowed her to actually go into the wider world, but she's still subject to the orders and demands of an outside force Mm -hmm. and so therefore she has to negotiate within her new strictures in order to be able to follow up on the things that matter to her like Mm -hmm. trying to find her parents and such like Mm -hmm. and now the whole experience with the endowment means that it sort of further cemented her importance to that established order and it's no longer just like yeah, okay, as long as you continue doing things for the RSA, you can work on whatever you want by yourself Mm. in the meantime, as long as it doesn't get in the way of that. No, now you're conscripted into service doing one particular thing. You don't have a a lot of freedom to do anything else aside from this one thing. It's like a further chain on Mm. her freedom, and that could explain some of the emotional turmoil that she's feeling. For the record, it was indeed Abby who asked, how long are we going to be out here? In response to finding out about the wind door on the notches. And it causes us to reflect on how being forced into a role with a power she did not choose seems designed to cause her stress, given her personality. Closing the wind doors can feel very reactive instead of proactive. And just because she's having some success with their given task, doesn't mean that she isn't having similar issues to James. It may just feel like it, due to the lack of success on his part to use the power at all. You know what, like, comes to mind, of all the things that could come to mind? You sort of want to grab Abigail, who is always just looking for that next horizon of just sort of like, oh my god, like I just want to get away from the shit that is around me here. 
and just say that line that is in Super Eye Patch's Space Jam 2 episode. Have you seen that one? I've seen it. I'm, yeah. I'm waiting to see you know, where you're going with it. You this know because... that bit where he dramatizes like the real version of Space Jam 2, and there's a climactic conversation between LeBron James and the ever-reaching Michael Jordan, where LeBron James, <laughs> fighting for all of humanity, and if you're confused by any of this, watch the video, it will make a f- modicum more sense, just says to Michael Jordan, you know what's on that next horizon? Just another goddamn horizon! <laughs> that, I think, is the uh, feeling I have looking at this and just what Abigail is struggling against, because she has every reason to be critical of the various chains and cages that are put around her, but the way that she kind of struggles against that means that she ends up butting heads with the people around her, and sometimes you just want to be like, okay, Abigail, I understand, but come on, please just consider this. I mean, that is kind of the crux of the conversation that Annie ends up confronting her with during these mm. chapters. So mm. we'll we'll get to talk a little bit more about that specific concept. During part of your earlier conversation, we started bringing Raven into the mix a little bit there. I did, didn't I? Yeah. He's, in fact, the next person I wanted to talk about because we finally get some character development with him. Mm. So let's move on to discuss what is revealed about Raven during these chapters. Or not, because Toby is going to Toby for a bit. Sidebar, I make no promises, I don't want to hold Alex to this, but I expect something that we may be talking about and be releasing to the general public within the time span that you and I are talking about, Steamheart, is a show that we are working towards on the DCAU Justice League. Mm. And seeing how Steamheart is balancing, like I can't even uh, off the top of my head count how many people we have on the team at present, let alone when we add a couple more people to the mix. The total after these chapters is nine, since Truth is at home and therefore not a part of the group dynamic, and Rebecca will be departing shortly. It's definitely making me appreciate just how difficult it is to kind of make this ensemble work. And Justice League is something which, in some occasions, it doesn't work. Like, it Mm -hmm. essentially starts up, and you have no idea who half of its cast are. Like, Mm -hmm. you recognize them, you know them, but it's sort of like, who are you and what's your deal? (laughs) No, we're fighting aliens? Okay, that's fine, I guess. We'll find out who the fuck Hawk Girl is in a season's time. That's fine. But, <laughs> like, here we're getting that, like, same sort of question. Seeing what an author does with this set of problems, which is I have a narrative I want to say and I want to structure everything in surface to that, but I also want to make sure that no one's left behind, like Jeremy, like Raven. Mm-hmm. Well, to be perfectly honest, I feel like Steamheart does a better job of that, at least, because those early chapters establish, this is why this person is here, this is why this person is here, 
When mm-hmm. I first even heard about the Justice League cartoon, I was like, okay, what's the lineup here? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah no, that's this is a version of the JLA that I'm familiar with, being a fan of it thanks to Grant Morrison's run during the 2000s. Mm. And then I'm like, Hawkgirl. Okay, I know who she is technically. I've heard reference to her and Hawkman in the comics. Why did they pick her for the Justice League? And it felt like the only reason is just because they wanted another woman on the team, not because it was thematically resonant or because they needed someone with her specific power set. And to be perfectly honest, I only watched a little bit of the Justice League cartoon, so the fact that they actually touch on that a little bit it, it makes me interested to hear more I'll, about your upcoming show. So, She, from a surface-level impression, essentially acts as the Thor of the team. And ah, like, okay. Her power set is even remarkably similar in the way that she'll like toss around her mace and everything like that. Mm-hmm. She has a unique energy. I would almost... I don't think she's voiced by her, but she has an almost Jennifer Hale mm. energy. And so I put it to you... Do you ever want to have a team ensemble without Jennifer Hale in the mix? <laughs> that's okay. That's a fair point. Um, <laughs> I obviously have a great love of her, not just because uh, she was the voice of Femship during the Mass Effect trilogy, but she's been a number of other notable voices both before and after Mass Effect. So, yes, mm. I can definitely yeah. appreciate And to clarify, I don't believe that Jennifer Hale is voicing her here. My point is that the reaction of, oh, she's cool, and she has the performance and the characterization in the show has that assurity that I always associate with characters voiced by Jennifer Hale. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until doing some research during the edit that I realized just how long Jennifer Hale has been in the biz. Aside from Commander Shepard, Hale has also voiced Avatar Kyoshi, Jedi Knight Bastila's Shan from Knights of the Old Republic, Carol Danvers from the Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon, and most recently, Maria Hill from the ill-fated Avengers video game. So she definitely has a type that she plays towards. But in addition to that, She's been both a halfling paladin and Rashomon witch from Baldur's Gate, Giganta and Zatanna from various DC cartoons, Gabby McStaberson from the new DuckTales, Trinity in Matrix The Path of Neo, and a warrior princess from some weird 80s cartoon called <laughs> And with that segue out of the way, Back to our Iroquois journalist. Like Jeremy, we've only seen things from Raven's perspective a couple of times in the story, and one of those revealed very little about him as a person because it was just the narration of an action sequence. But the first moments of chapter 24 finally give us a hint of what it is he's been keeping secret inside, and we don't have to wait long to find out what happens after that. It's in this moment we see the truth, or more specifically, a truth, about why Raven doesn't consider himself a people person. He can maintain a level of control when he wants to, but in this moment with James, we see him completely out of control, just like he was in the bar when Thomas confronted him. 
he has an enormous capacity for hate. Hate for himself, but also hate for humanity. Because it seems clear he really does blame white colonialism for taking the one person he loved from him. This is the thing that it felt like some of those other writings and internal moments of Raven were hinting at. Does he actually care about influencing minds? Or is his chosen role as a journalist a desire to hold up a mirror to humanity and show it just how fucked up it is? And that its fate is deserved by its own actions? If it feels like I'm being a little harsh here... I'd point out, yes, maybe my reading is informed by one of the influences that Alex drew on to craft Raven, Spider-Jerusalem of Transmetropolitan. In Spider's case, there is never any question of how he feels, because he is never shy about saying so. He is not diplomatic in the slightest, and seldom holds back on any part of himself. But that also includes Spider's narrative voice in his articles. And Raven's writing is a little different in that regard. Raven doesn't sugarcoat what he means to say, but he still coaches it in language meant to inspire thought, rather than an emotional reaction as intensely inflammatory as he was with Thomas or James. Think back on what Raven wrote at the beginning of chapter 12, where he showed a moment of genuine emotion in his writing, and then how he went on to say that he wasn't going to publish what he just wrote. It feels like there is a war inside him, that two opposing beliefs are true at the same time and influence each other. A desire to believe in people, and a fierce denial that people are worth saving. I think on his comment about the endowment, and how he suggested it was meant for someone better than us, and it almost sounds like he's tarring everybody with the same brush perhaps never more so than now, after he feels he betrayed the memory of his wife. An impulse from the reader might be to judge Raven's present state here and his actions as he kind of comes across like a bedraggled bird, responding to hateful assessments of a hateful people with a surrender to something that helps him reach a kind of oblivion, only for that to feel further crestfallenness that cycles back around to him seeking out drink to help him forget. He could give in to his nihilistic impulses, sinking into drink and just checking out of caring, just being a bird of ill omen with tattered feathers. Mm. Toby will never stop being fond of those bird metaphors. Honestly, it feels weird that we've never really talked about the potential meaning behind the choice of Raven as a name for this character. In some First Nations mythologies, Raven is a trickster god, and we already know the significance of the Raven to Poe. However, that will be a topic for another time, as we've already got plenty of actual character development to discuss, rather than symbolism. Part of Raven's internal struggle, that tension that I was talking about earlier, is in his astute nature and in his conviction of holding firm to his assured sense of what is right and what is wrong and using his reporting to in some way hold the world to task. He holds the world accountable, but he also holds himself accountable. And in a vicious self-hating spiral, 
that is difficult to escape, even with the assistance of drink that dulls those sharp senses that understands just how fucked the world is and just how much you see of your own failings. And yet, throwing in the towel isn't really an option he's likely to take, or he would allow himself to take. The world must be accountable, and because he trusts nobody but himself to take it fully to task, he is accountable to that self-imposed responsibility. That is what Thomas was kind of alluding to during that confrontation in the bar. And it's something that James touches on a little more lightly in that moment. He isn't trying to weaponize Raven's nature in that moment, kind of the way that Thomas was. He has more compassion for Raven's current state, I think partly because he understands what it means to have lost someone like that. Thomas had Sarah in his life right up until the two of them were gone for this world. And James, meanwhile, has the ongoing difficulty with Abigail, but it all stems out of their mutual loss of Lucy. I suspect that James can sympathize with how he threw himself into being a doctor as a response to that loss and how he focuses on that to little else a lot of the time, or at least he did right up until they left Weirwood. This is some of the character elements that we touched on all the way back in Secret Rooms, as to how prior to leaving Weirwood, being a doctor is almost the only thing that he would actually do, mm. and that forcing him to exist in the rest of the world and interact with the rest of the world not just by becoming a cartographer, but like some of the social attempts that Frank made and everything like that, that's what made him into more than just his work. In a way, that's a little bit similar to what Raven is experiencing right now, and perhaps part of the reason why he's being as emotionally chaotic as he is. Thinking about it, New Century is full of stories where trauma and loss causes people to inhabit a form of stasis, keeping the world at arm's length, or bound within tight constraints to avoid further harm. The experience of James and Raven is not unlike what happened to Harau, and even Rebecca for a time. It's a theme Alex clearly revisits again and again in one form or another where people or events break the wounded out of their self-imposed exile in order to grow again. If we look at it from the perspective of he was able to maintain a distance from individuals, he was able to refrain from making connections by just being a reporter and having his work be the only thing that he was doing as he was observing current events and humanity and individual characters. But it didn't seem like he was going out of his way to make friends. And he himself, just like Abigail, is now stuck on Steamheart with all of these people. And he probably doesn't actually want to make friends with all of them. Mm. But there's some degree to which he can't avoid doing that, being that Mm. they're all depending on each other for safety and nourishment of various kinds, both physical and social. And we already know that. Abigail was like engaging with him in a great deal in between 
the events at the Sixle Mine and Memphis now, mm. and how it seemed like he was getting to the point where he's like, okay, I'm kind of done talking about this. I'm done talking in general. Can you just not let me be woman? <laughs> In a similar mm. way that Frank was feeling frustrated with James, as we were discussing earlier. Mm. So it's entirely possible, like, one of the things I was actually looking at was Raven sleeping with Ruby, a uh, response to that stressful moment where they're being run down by the Southern Cross. But they've had nearly a month now to recover from that. And of course, PTSD is a thing, but like, there's no longer some immediate thing going on there. Therefore, Raven's choice to go to a place where there's fresh booze, because as we recall, he used at last of his current alcohol stash to help fight off the Southern Cross. So he's like, yeah, if we're going to go get a drink, let's let's go to a place that has good booze. And then, of course, decides to sleep with one of the offered prostitutes. This could be because his own internal stuff is being built up and built up and built up in the same way that Abigail's internal stuff was being built up and built up and built up. And mm. this was his attempt to address some of that. And it only ended up making things worse, just in a different mm. way than it did with Abigail. So my question and I, I don't necessarily have a conclusion to this, so feel free to say your own answer to this, is mm -hmm. do we think that this is the first time that Raven would have slept with another woman after losing his wife? Or do we think that there's a likelihood that he's perhaps done this before, but that doesn't necessarily alleviate the sting of feeling like in some way he's betrayed her? There's too much in-between stuff that we don't necessarily know about Raven's mm. life. Right. I, I suspect not because of the way he puts this emphasis on last night I betrayed her memory. I suspect that the work and the drink are the two things that he was using in mm. order to deal with his own internal brokenness for a very long time. And they may not necessarily have had an opportunity yeah. for this kind of destructive activity, so to sure. speak. Like having sex with a prostitute isn't inherently self-destructive. But it's, it's how he feels about it. Exactly, yes. Yeah. I'm sort of torn. I think he drinks a lot more readily than he leans towards seeking out a sexual partner mm -hmm. as some sort of release from the anguish he feels inside. In, in a lot of ways, it's kind of neither here nor there. The point is that, like, whether this is the first time or the third or fourth time that this has happened... It still feels fresh. It feels like he needed to indulge in something as some kind of release. But in the cold light of day, he is able to sort of see all of himself in that. I think that in that way, Raven feels like he's sort of lost some of that performative. And I think it is performative because mm. we see a lot of the bluster that we'll talk about in a second that he directs towards James and he fixates on little details to kind of chide at James about mm -hmm. that is a distraction from the main thing that like he's trying to throw James off the scent like it's like mm -hmm. oh you think you've got me pegged well fuck you buddy like oh yeah like look at Mr. New Thomas Arlington over here he's doing something that is kind of like throwing bluster out there in order to put focus on the thing that he doesn't really want to talk about 
because it's an avoidance strategy. And mm. to some extent, I think him sleeping with someone is an avoidance strategy in some form. But again, much like how we didn't see inside Abigail's head through her narration as she went to the Diamond Bell, and we could only sort of guess at her internal feelings in the same way that Annie was, we don't get to see Raven's state of mind when he decides, mm. eh, you know what, I'll do this. And pointedly, it's even when the wind has come out of Abigail's sails herself. So he doesn't even have the sort of feeling of like, oh, you know what, like the whole group's sort of doing this, I'm going to get caught up in it. He's kind of like the only person who's like, well, if no one else is going to do it, I'll go do this. So that carries a certain unique energy to it. But we don't get to see the motivation or the reasoning inside at the time. We only get to see the regret afterwards, which I think speaks to the sensation, the experience that Raven steeps himself in, which is, I do this to forget. I want to talk more about that particular violent outburst and what it implies about what's going on inside his head. But before that, in direct response to your query about whether this thing with Ruby was something new, out of personal experience, as you go through life, you develop certain coping mechanisms in order to deal with whatever it is you're having to force your way through on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, whatever it is. Mm. And there sometimes comes a point where either the stress builds up or there's some new thing that you're not prepared to deal with. And your normal coping mechanisms don't necessarily compensate enough for something like that. And given that he was already drinking, it might have given him the inhibitionless impulse to try something new in order to dull the pain. And, yes. And as a result, ended up making things worse in a way that he didn't think about until afterwards. It feels as if when we come in there, we're kind of with James and we have this thing of like, we judge him for all this other stuff that we see that's external, the drinking, the state he's in when they really need to get on the road. And yet when James gets to the heart of the reason why, at that point, he doesn't really sort of offer further judgment on that. He just offers, here's what we're going to do and we'll carry on. Because I think in some way that's, James acting as a doctor and knowing that this is kind of the real curative that helps Raven when he mm. does his work. Because if he feels as if he's betrayed her memory, then he needs to honor her memory, which mm. is to do his job, to be this journalist who holds a mirror to the world. I think that's what it comes down to is that there is a certain sad turmoil, which is obvious, but it's ineffable in a way. And Raven himself doesn't necessarily know how to articulate. Like for this man who is so astute with everything, he simultaneously understands his own feelings within and yet has no goddamn idea what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that does lead to what you're saying, that he thinks maybe this will help in some way. And it doesn't. It just makes it worse. And it's just like, okay, then I don't know what to do. And James suggests you do what you're good at, mm -hmm. because that's what I know helps you. Under certain circumstances, becoming close to somebody else, pursuing intimacy might be a way to move on. 
the way it was for Rebecca carrying around all of her unresolved stuff with Rafe and deciding to pursue something new, something good with James was a way for her to show that she'd moved beyond her pain. But Raven's not in a place to do that yet. Or alternatively, he may never be in a place to do it. Something that made a difference for one person may not be applicable to another. When he reveals that he feels guilty at spending an evening with Ruby, I look at this angry provoking at James and wonder if his behavior is about wanting James to disavow and punish him. At this moment is as much performative as it is genuine. It's somewhat performative, but I also think that he does really set himself up against James, this man who is revealing himself to be, in Raven's eyes, Arlington's toady. I think he's lashing out because he feels remorse and self-loathing and is directing some of that outwards while resenting anyone who's intruding his space as he processes these private feelings. Also, he's going to be spiteful towards any man, and certainly a white man many years younger than him, standing in judgment of him when he has so little of the full picture. Toby hits on a significant point here. Thomas judging Raven is one thing, but being judged by a British man is naturally going to rankle more. While it may not be true of James in specific, the British stereotype is one of superiority and quote-unquote, civilization, the thing that non-white barbarians do not have, and therefore the Empire must teach them. Raven's words are full of judgment right back at James, what with terms like shyster, or making aspirations against English propriety. Indeed, when Raven mentions Nadie's death, it's hard not to feel like his anger is justified, what with the American propensity for dehumanizing others. This is a subject that's going to be more relevant in later books, both for Britain in general and James in specific, so I'll leave it there for now. It's as if he hears all the surface-level observations of Raven's shortcomings that stem from what Raven feels with the certainty are as much more profound internal failings, and in the face of that, what can Raven do but scoff at James and say, Oh yes, bravo, good doctor, you have summed me up and cut to the heart of me. Why, how high and mighty you are to have seen all that I am. Now piss off, I'm tired of being assessed by someone who doesn't know me. That's what makes James identifying the actual root cause of this emotional crash, something that disarms Raven, leaving both men as they are, without put-upon bluster, so that all they are left with is the right path forward and onward that they just agree on between them. I'm really enjoying how you keep on getting into this tendency of like trying to speak with the voice of these characters during your little pre-written responsive segments here. The delivery of it, the choice of words, the emotional genuineness. For a moment there, I was like, holy shit, that's a really good impression of Raven there for a moment. Yeah, that's always what I sort of focus on because I am not good with developing accents. I get too up inside my own head, which is antithetical to the practice of like acting, where 
you don't want to be excessively aware of like everything you're doing as you're saying or performing what I've always enjoyed doing is as both a creative exercise, but also an analytical exercise. The oldest trick in the book, put yourself in the shoes of someone else that helps in a social context, a therapy context, and yes, in a creative fiction context of just trying to articulate and understand why characters are the way they are. Before too long, you end up really inhabiting that character, even if you can't perfectly mirror their individual eccentricities or their accents or anything like that. If you can just get the emotion of them, then you will have 70% of the performance because Mm. you have the character there. Only after all this discussion about Raven and James does it feel like we fail to understand what this moment and the one in chapter 12 or really about. Perhaps Raven just wants to be done with all of this. He's tired of the pain, of the disappointment, and just wants it all to be over, not unlike Wild Bill Hickok in Deadwood. He may have been trying to provoke both Thomas and James into relieving him of this responsibility. Not simply the one Thomas imposed on him, but the one that he imposes on himself to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. It's worth discussing more in the future, but we're going to have to wait till more of the story is revealed. For now, I end on a song that I've identified with during my darker moments, looking around me and seeing nothing but the bad things, and wishing that I, like Raven, could somehow just stop holding on to that darkness. Until next time... This is The Police with King of Pain.
It's the same old thing as yesterday.